uh, today I want to spend some time kind of journeying through what the resurrection really means for you and for me. And if you remember, over the last few weeks, we've been in something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed not because we believe that the apostles actually wrote it. The apostles were like Jesus' homies, the people that like saw him and kicked it with them and drank tea or whatever they drank, right? Like they, 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 they hung out with them, right? Now, it wasn't called the Apostles' Creed because they wrote it. Rather, it was an accurate summary of what the apostles taught, and that's important for us us to know as we kind of continue today. And so last week we talked about um, uh, his crucifixion and things along those. Today we're in uh, Article 3b, and it says this. I think I have a, a slide for it. It says, the third day he rose again from the dead. Now last week, like I said, right, we ended on the suffering, we ended on the crucifixion, we, we ended on, on Jesus being buried and then finally uh, dying. But it's important for us, and I want to spend some time talking about this, that this is not the end of the story. Right? I mean, see, see, the center of the gospel and the heart of the good news is that Christ isn't in that grave any, any longer, right? And, and it's incredibly important, and I want to spend some time really allowing us to know this, right? It's important not to just know that in your head, but allow that to be in your heart, and it actually changed the way that you, you live your life, the way you think about yourself that Christ has risen. What does that actually mean for you, and what does it really mean, what does it mean for me? This last week, I, I was Googling um, some different surveys and studies that were done um, by an organization called Lifeway, and one entitled, uh, Americans Love God in the Bible, but are fuzzy on the details. It says that 64% of Americans believe that Jesus physically resurrected from the dead, 64% of Americans. The sadder part of the study is 98% of the people who took the survey were Christian. So there's a bunch of people that call themselves Christians that don't believe in the very doctrine, the very event that made Christianity, Christianity, Right? So there's a bunch of people that are calling themselves Christians that don't really have an understanding of what it means to follow Christ, hence why we're actually in this series called The Creed, learning about what are the main theological um, or important doctrines that if you're calling yourself a follower of Christ that we have to adhere to. We have to at least have somewhat of an understanding and an ability to explain to somebody else. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, right? And that's why I want to spend some time talking about the resurrection today. You know, some would say, and, and for those of you guys that don't really know my story, I come from kind of a skeptic household, an atheist household, and most of really anyone with my last name, Sanfrani, isn't a follower of Christ, isn't, isn't a Christian. And so I'd hear things like this all the time, right, when I, especially when I became a Christian, right? Well, you, you know, you just have to have faith, right? And, and you either have it or you don't have it about the resurrection, about Jesus, about all these other types of things. And if you don't have it, well, then you just don't, you don't have it. And I would say, yeah, right, faith is an important kind of component and element. But I also think God gave you and gave me a brain, and he expects us to, to use that brain to make that gap, that leap of faith, shorter, right? And so the reality is, we all have faith in something. That is the, yeah, we all, we all take leaps of faith in some sense of the way because we all uh, leap to things that, that we think are going to be valuable or, or, or full of truth or are going to make our lives just better. I mean, just think about it. You go to school, right, because you have faith that when you end those four years of hell that you're going to get a better job, right? So you spend all of this money, spend all of this energy going to school, leaping, hoping that, that you're going to get a better job, make more money, it's going to make you happier. But, but let's be honest real quick. None of that is certain, right? None of that is either one certain or two that is written in stone, and in many ways it's a leap of faith as well. But for the resurrection, I think God wants us to use our brains so that this leap of faith isn't like over the Grand Canyon, right? But as we follow the evidence, we're going to talk about that today, as we, as we examine, study the evidence, we're going to learn that God isn't asking you or me to be evil Knievel, right? He's not asking you to make these huge jumps, these big leaps of faith, because he wants us to use our mind. He's given us a mind that can cognitively, rationally understand certain things, and he wants you and I to use it. So the leap of faith, I don't think, needs to be as large, as, as intense as it, as it is, because just like he showed his hands, right, to doubting Thomas, 
And Thomas is like, yo, there's no chance, like, this is really you. And he's like, yo, check my hands out, right? Just like he showed evidence to Thomas, he's going to show you and I evidence if we're willing to ask, if we're willing to put some effort in and, and then study some of the evidence. And so today we're going to do two things. Um, part of our message, we're going to break it up in kind of two segments. The first part of it is going to be um, this. Uh, is there good evidence to believe that Christ resurrected? Right? And so this is a field called apologetics. And uh, if you know me, you know I'm super passionate about apologetics. It's the philosophical, theological, historical kind of defense of the Christian faith and worldview. And I'm super passionate. I love it. So if it bores you, I'm sorry. Um, but I want you guys to know that there's good evidence. And I talk about this every Easter. There's good evidence to believe that this guy named Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago actually walked out of the grave. And then two, in light of that, right, in light that there is good evidence, if this really happened, then what does this really mean for my life? What does the resurrection mean for me? What does it mean for you? So part one of our message today is the, is the good evidence. Now, it's obvious, right, that, that Christ, he flipped the world upside down, right? There was a time, right, like 2,000 years ago that this guy named Jesus, he lived and he died and was, was resurrected. And because of his, his, his death and supposedly resurrection, the world has never been the same. In fact, Christianity is the world's largest religion, 2.7 billion people. So we know something happened in the first century, right, that changed the course of history to come. And I believe the best explanation for that points to Jesus actually rising from the dead. And to prove that to you, I just want to give you two pieces of evidence today. And we're going to go through this quick because I don't want to, if it bores you, I, I want to get through it kind of quickly. And if you have more questions about this, about the resurrection, or you have family members who are an atheist, or you're an atheist, come challenge me, come talk with me. I have some resources I can hand to you. I'd love to spend more time with you on this. Now, the first question that I often get from skeptics or people who are atheists is, well, did Jesus, did he really die on the cross? Right, because if he didn't actually die on the cross, it just appeared as though he was dead. If he was beaten really bad and knocked unconscious, or whatever it may be, then then yeah, of course people saw him walking around later because he could just woke up out of his coma or whatever it is. This is actually called swoon theory. Um, and I want to spend some time kind of thinking about this and, and learning about this. One thing we have to understand is the Romans knew how to kill people, right? They perfected the art of killing people. In fact, they, that's how they developed the torture device called the cross. Last week we learned that the word excruciating comes from the Latin out of the cross, the pain that one would experience out of the cross. They literally needed to come up with a new word Describe the type of pain, the type of agony one would feel as they were dying on the cross. So they perfected the art of killing. Now, there's not just that, right? There are many first and second uh, century historians, Roman historians, that give the account of Jesus' death. There's a guy like um, uh, Thallus or Tactus, um, and even Jewish historians like Josephus and the uh, Babylonian Talmud. They, they all record and affirm and acknowledge that Jesus was crucified and that he, in fact, died. But even more, it makes... A fact that I, that I even like maybe even more than that is that the Roman guards would have faced death if they allowed a prisoner to survive crucifixion. So they would have never been foolish enough or careless enough to remove a person from a cross who was still living. In fact, that's why they had certain rules in, in place. It was regular exercise. I think we talked about this last week, to break the kneecaps of the people that were actually being crucified so that they couldn't push up to get some uh, air into their lungs and things like that. It was also common practice that they would crush their skulls with hammers or they would take a spear and stab the side of, of, of the person that was on the cross to um, puncture their heart. And, and in fact, in the biblical account, we have just that. It says this in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 32. It says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and this, is, this part's important, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So to really confirm that Jesus was actually dead, a Roman centurion or a soldier grabbed a spear and stabbed right under Jesus' rib cage. And uh, medical science talks about this. What would have happened is um, it would have ruptured something called the pericardial sac. 
which is essentially a, a sack of blood vessels that carry water around the heart. And so when it says that blood and water spewed from Jesus' side, it's literally saying that he died of a broken heart, that his, that his heart was punctured, that, that, it, that it was pierced through. So I think it's safe to say, right, that, that Jesus was, was actually dead. Now, the first piece of evidence that I want to give us today is this, that the tomb in which Jesus was buried, and I, yeah, I have a slide for this, the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty by a group of women. So the sub-point is the Jews and Romans admitted that the tomb was empty. Now, it's important that they never refuted this fact, right, that there was a tomb that was empty. So rather, they weren't trying to figure out that the tomb was empty, rather how it actually became empty. Perhaps the most remarkable uh, reference to Jesus outside of the Bible about his tomb being empty can be found in the writings of Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. He says this um, in the Testimonium Flavinum. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. Now, remember, he was Jewish. This guy wouldn't have, like, loved writing this, right? And he says, at his... And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, that he was alive. So this next sub-point is that women were the first to discover the tomb. And so you go, all right, like, who cares? Right, like, great, that's fantastic that women were the first people to be there. Well, this is actually super and highly significant, because in the first century, Jews believed that women were second-class citizens. They couldn't actually even give a testimony in court because they weren't seen as credible. They could have no eyewitness testimony, in other words. So the disciples, if they were lying about the resurrection, they made it that much more difficult and harder to accept by allowing women to be at the forefront of the story, that they were the first people to see the empty tomb and go and tell everybody else. In fact, it would be an embarrassing detail that you would have never led with unless it was real, unless it actually happened. In fact, in all of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels, they all account that say that Women were the first to get to the empty tomb, and so I think that just proves in some sense of the way that there's some evidence pointing to maybe this actually really happened. Subpoint three is this, that they preached about the empty tomb within walking distance of the tomb. So the disciples told the people about the resurrection in the very city that Jesus was buried in, in the very city that he was uh, crucified in, that he died in. So this is actually super important because they didn't go to some obscure place saying about the resurrection, this guy named Jesus, who you've never heard of, never seen, that that guy like rised from the dead. Rather, they went to the very heart of the city, Jerusalem, where this all actually happened. And it would have been impossible to do this. This message would have never spread past a month, not 2,000 years later, if his body was still in the tomb. Because people literally would have heard what the disciples were saying and saying, well, let's go walk over to the tomb especially because it was, it was this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. It was his tomb. Like, everyone would have known where this tomb was. So everyone could have just said, what do you mean? Like, he's still in there. And so it's important to know that they, they went to the very place that this happened. So the next thing I want to talk about is that the Jews, they had, and the Romans, they had no motive to steal the body. They had no motive to steal the body. The Jews and the Romans wanted to squash Christianity, not give it fuel for fire. But your next thing would be like, all right, well, the disciples sure had a motive, right? They sure had somewhat of a motive to steal the body so they could keep their movement going. And I would ask, well, well, did they really? I mean, did the disciples really have a good motive? Piece of evidence number two is this. Jesus appeared to his followers, and they experienced a change of heart, and then were willing to die for their faith. Subpoint one is that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. So you could say to disciples, right, that they lied about, you know, actually seeing Jesus and things like that, but that doesn't explain his appearance to 500 other people that have wrote about it and talked about it and things along those lines. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he literally writes down people's names. He's like, yo, go talk to the homie Mark. He was there. Or go talk to Tanner or whoever, right? Like, go talk to these people. Like, here's their address, right? Like, 
They said they saw this. Go talk to them. They're still alive. In other words, he gave them living history. And Paul says, go and challenge them. Go and ask them about this. It would be like, it would be like denying the Holocaust in front of a bunch of Holocaust survivors. They'd be like, I could, I could tell you about where it was geographically, who was there. I may even have scars, maybe even a barcode that they gave us, right? Like, like I, I could tell you from my, the scars on my own body and experience that I, that I was there. In fact, there are actual people today that are Holocaust deniers. And, and in, in, in the academic world, it's laughed upon that, that they would deny something like this because there's eyewitness testimonies. Subpoint two is this, that the disciples willingly died as martyrs because they believed they saw the risen Christ. This, for me, is the most powerful argument. Think of Peter, right? For those of us that aren't too familiar with the story, Peter denies Jesus three times up to his death, up to Jesus' death, his crucifixion, right? So Jesus is being dragged off um, uh, to court and finally to his flogging. We talked about that last week. And then finally to where he was going to be nailed to two pieces of wood. And all throughout this time, people are like, hey, aren't you like Peter? Aren't you the guy that like, was friends with Jesus? And he said, no, no, that's not me. He said it three different times because he feared his own death. You fast forward just a handful of years, that very man who was timid comes to a place where he's at the end of his, where he's about to be at the end of his life, and he says, I'm not even worthy to die the same death as my Lord Jesus. So that he asked the people that are going to kill him to crucify him upside down, and that's how Peter dies. How? How does it happen, right? You know, people will often point to other people who have died for a lie, uh, whether it be, um, uh, well, yeah, whatever it be, uh, people flying, uh, you know, planes into towers or whatever it may be, like on 9-11, right? Well, what's the difference between the disciples 2,000 years ago in this event to the event that happened in 2001? Uh, what is really, what is, what is different? Well, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the disciples would be the only people to actually know it. Therefore, they, they wouldn't be, they would actually be dying for what they believed was actually a lie, that they knew for certain wasn't true. And if history tells us one thing, Liars make poor martyrs. Be like, oh, I was just kidding. You know, like, yeah, I don't want to be crucified upside down, dipped in hot oil. That doesn't sound like a, a vacation or a day at the spa. Like, no, thank you, right? But they died, and all of them, all of them died horrifically, being, uh, this, yeah, if you were to Google how the disciples died, their heads being chopped off, crucified upside down, dipped in, uh, in boiling wax, um, uh, lifted through poles, um, dipped in wax and lit on, uh, on fire like candles to light Rome at night in a place called Nero's Circus, uh, fed the lions. Um, they would have horses strapped to each four limbs and run in four different directions. These people died horrifically. What could possess them? What could encourage them to lay down their lives if this wasn't actually true? I think this is the most powerful argument. And this is so powerful that skeptics, atheists, people that reject this, uh, offer another theory that the disciples actually believed, that they actually saw Jesus. And their grief um, and, 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 and the hurting of their hearts made them hallucinate. Uh, so they really did believe that they saw Jesus, but it was just a figment of their imagination. This is actually called the hallucination theory. Well, I think it's silly, but it's highly unlikely, right, that the disciples and 500 other people would have had all of the same exact hallucination. Hallucinations are, are highly individual, they don't transfer like that, right? They, they're not group projections and things like that. I mean, imagine if I just came to you, right? And I was like, yo, that was a crazy dream I had last night. You'd be like, <laughs> you're nuts. Like, well, what? That's not, how, that's not how dreams work. They don't, they don't transfer like that. Neither do hallucinations. Also, I think the hallucination theory can't explain the conversion of Paul three years later. Was, was Paul, was his heart so hurt, the persecutor of Christians, uh, so hoping to see the resurrected Jesus that his mind invented an appearance as well? Well, I think that's silly right? 
I think that, and another significant thing is that the hallucination theory can't even deal with the evidence for the empty tomb. I think there's huge holes. And I think the best explanation is that this guy named Jesus actually did rise from the dead. See, it's important. And the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, and this is, this is important for those of you guys in this room or have family members that they don't actually believe this actually happened. The significant piece here is the resurrection of Jesus is intensely personal. Because if this actually happened, if 2,000 years ago, a man who claimed to be God, the sole authority that governs all things, actually died and then resurrected, then what that really means is that you and I are not the sole authorities over our lives. That you are not allowed to do what you want to do all of the time. That your life was created for a purpose. It was created for a reason. I actually find this to be beautiful. Especially what we learned in week two, right? That God's trustworthy, that he knows what's best, and that he loves you and I deeply. So he's not going to lead us astray. He's not this master that lords over our life. Rather, we talked about in week two, a compassionate father that comes alongside his children and cares deeply for you and for me. But the resurrection, why people reject it, isn't on intellectual or historical reasons. They reject it because it means that they are not autonomous. They are not, self, they, they are not self-governing any longer. And that's why people reject the resurrection and the claims of Christ. And see, this is why I think makes Christianity so special, that the very love of God is displayed in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Jesus. And that has been demonstrated to be true. I think it's the best explanation. So your leap of faith doesn't have to be you over the Grand Canyon. He's given you a mind to study this stuff. And I'd love, if you, if you want more about this, then come talk with me. Because this is the heart of what the good news is. Last week, we talked a lot about the cross, right? And the cross is, and I think I have a slide for this, the cross is where Jesus stamped with his blood, paid in full. The word that we, we learned last week was tetelestai. Tetelestai was a word that Jesus said, but it was also a Greek term. It was a Greek accounting term. And in the ancient world, would have scripts uh, on receipts of tetelestai all over it because it meant paid in full. There's, there's no more payment. It's 100% paid in full. So that was last week. Today, we're talking about the resurrection. It's where Jesus said, I told you so. My resurrection is validation. It's a vindication that I am everything I said I am. And it's not just that. It's where he says, now I have some things to offer you. I have two things to offer you. See, if the cross is where Jesus paid for our sin, the resurrection is improving it and then offering us something. Today, I want to talk just the remaining of our time with these two things. Number one, the first thing the resurrection means for you, and it means for me, is that we can be reborn. That's like a weird churchy term, but let's jump into scripture to learn more about it. It says in John chapter three, starting in verse one, it says, there was a man named Nicodemus, Something we need to know about Nicodemus, right? It's actually, Nicodemus means the conquering one. He wasn't born with this name. The Jewish religious leaders, they were called the Pharisees, they gave him this name because they would send Nicodemus in to basically squash any rebellion, squash any religious fanatics because he was really good at arguing, right? So they send this guy named Nicodemus to go talk with Jesus. It says this, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. I need you to hear this, like, back when you were 11 and you were like, talking back to your mom, because this is the tone. He says, Rabbi, he said, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your miracles, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man, it goes like a joke, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can rep reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Here's the heart of what, what Jesus is saying here. Being born again just simply means that you and I, we go through a major and profound change. 
I mean, just think about how a baby changes in a mother's womb, right? It's, 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 it starts off looking like a Furby from like the 90s, like a Ninja Turtle or something, right? And then turns into you and me. Like, that's crazy, right? These huge changes happen. The, the, in the mother's womb, this baby grows and huge changes happen. Jesus is saying to actually have a relationship with me, to actually have a relationship with God, you have to have a change as dramatic as the change that happens in a mother's womb. This is incredibly offensive, right? Because this is, this is the heart of what he's saying. He's, I can do nothing with you as you are who you are currently. Ouch. It's not even just that. He goes on and basically he says, in your natural state, you are born condemned. You are born separated and offensive to me because of your sin. You can't hear that and go like, oh, he's so sweet. You, know, you, you can't. Like, that's an offensive statement. To say that, like, you're, you're offensive and disgusting to me. You need to be reborn so that we can actually have a relationship with each other. Like, that wouldn't win you over to date, right? Like, <laughs> it's an offensive statement. So Christ comes and he says, listen, through my death, you can be reborn. And I, I want you to understand this because this is so essential to your growth and who Christ wants you to become. Because what Jesus is communicating and what it means to be reborn is that your soul and my soul can be regenerated. It can be restored, renewed, and finally reconnected to God as it always should have been. And I love the way that Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, chapter 6. He says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, so here's, here's what Jesus is saying, or I'm sorry, Paul's saying. It's kind of confusing. He's saying, you and I, we were born separated. We were born condemned because of our sin. If there's anything I want you to understand about sin, it's that it separates. Sin separates. It, 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 it divides things that ought not to be separated. Death bring, or sin brings death. Death is simply uh, the separation uh, of, our, of our bodies and our soul, and, and spiritual death is our soul from our creator, heaven. Right? And, and so sin separates. And he's saying, listen, like you were born into a world, into a humanity that's infected with a disease called sin, and it separates us. So you have to be reborn. You have to be made new. You have to be reconnected to me. If you're ever going to have a relationship with me, the cross is the thing that's going to allow you to have a relationship with me. And so what he's saying is that, like I said earlier, it's, it's incredibly offensive that, that, that our old self the part of us that has yet to, whether it be give our lives over to Christ or whatever it is, it's offensive to God. But once we follow Christ, once we've placed our faith in Christ, the old self of us has died when we've placed ourselves in Christ. No, that's, in, that's super intense. Let me, let me break that apart a little for you. Because what this means is the part of you that was ruled by sin doesn't have to be ruled by sin anymore. What that means is the addictions, the habits, the mindsets, the attitudes don't have to be the things that enslave you any longer. The things that you believed about yourself for most of your life because your teachers, your coaches, your parents, whoever it may be, have told you the lies about yourself, you no longer have to believe. Because God's Spirit will come into you and it'll empower you to conquer these addictions, conquer these habits, become a new person. That's what most of Paul's epistles, his letters, talk about you and I being made new, being a new creation. The, the old is gone. In fact, now it actually even says when you and I continue to sin, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. You don't have to do those things anymore. But you just need to lean upon Christ and give you the strength to no longer do the things that you used to be enslaved in. And see, the implications of this story, the good news of this, is that you and I, last week we talked about the cross pardons us of our sin. And then now, because of the Holy Spirit, the post-cross, you're no longer slaves to your sin. And you can now be reborn into this new person who now has fellowship with God. 
See, the implications of this story are, are, are incredible. The implications of, of the, the resurrection is, is incredible because countless people over countless years have had their, their very lives made new, completely turned around because of the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys made it over to our main this last week. We had a guy named David Wood um, speak. He was a sociopath. Um, he basically got a hammer and tried to murder his dad one day. And he has, like, absolutely no feelings. He just ate wax with a hammer to his dad's face, face left him for dead. Um, obviously went to jail, and then years later became a Christian, which is like, if God can save him, if God can change him, like, he could change us. See, this idea of the resurrection, it isn't an ancient event. It means some miraculous things for you and I today because the same God that did a miracle 2,000 years ago is the same God that's going to do miracles in your life and in my life. See, if the resurrection really happened, it actually may even mean something more powerful, more important for us. And I want to spend the last part of our time talking about this because the resurrection means that this isn't all that there is. That this isn't all that there is because if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection really happened, then what it really means is that death isn't the end of our story. Yesterday, I, I had the, um, the privilege of, of doing a funeral uh, for, for a beautiful family. As I stood on the chapel in this stood on the stage in this chapel and was looking out on the stage in this filled chapel, I was able to offer this family like, real hope. I was able to offer the very best thing that Jesus offers you and offers me to this family. And so for the next few minutes, what I would love to talk with you guys about is heaven. I would love to just give you a scene of what heaven looks like from the very person, from the very lips of the person that created it, Jesus. It says this in the book of John chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe in also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. I want us to understand that heaven is not a figment of our imagination. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not the beauty of somewhere else. It is a prepared place for prepared people. And if you were a follower of Christ, it was prepared for you long ago. See, to really understand what heaven is like, we need to understand that heaven isn't a where, rather a proximity to a who. Because the where is good because it's intimately connected to the who. And that is, that, that is because heaven is where Jesus is. We, the reality is we can't speculate too much on, on what heaven is like because not much is said. But much in scripture is said about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the author of all that is good. He's the author of peace and fulfillment and life and, and laughter and joy. See, if there was one thing I want us to understand about heaven, it's infinitely better than anything that this world has to offer. In fact, even when we allow our imagination to run wild on the joys of heaven, we will find that it's incapable of conceiving what heaven is actually going to be like. And that is because the very God who created it begins where our imagination comes to an end. And so as we begin to wrap up today, I, I, want, I want you to know that heaven offers two things, but it also asks one of you. The first is it offers God himself. Nothing could be better than that the creator of life and joy and peace, offering himself to you for eternity. Number two, the opportunity to see your loved ones once again who have placed their faith in Christ. But what it asks of you is that you don't come alone. You know, this, this, this world will fade away. And the only thing that's going to last forever are people. It's the only thing that, that, that lasts forever. See, to be created in the image of God, what, what that means is that you have a soul, I have a soul, and that soul will exist for eternity. Who in your life needs to know this good news? That the God himself punched a hole into this universe in the person of Christ, and then he died for our sins so that we could be saved. 
And then that very God who brought Christ back from the dead is the very God who's going to come into your life and then change it. See, as I was thinking a lot this week about how, how, to, how to end this message. Heaven is better than anything your mind can conceive. Hell is worse than anything your mind can conceive. And in three weeks, we're going to talk about hell. As I've studied hell, I've learned that I've learned that it's far worse than anything I, I could ever, ever get. I could never even give you the, the appropriate words to describe it. And I reflect a lot on my dad. When I, when I read about the stories of hell, about the depravity, about the pain that's eternal, I reflect on the moments that I could have had and shared more of these types of conversations with my dad. I would hate for you to look over one of your loved ones one day while your mind's going, wishing that you could have had all these different conversations, pointing your loved ones, your friends to Christ because the only thing that you can take with heaven or to heaven is people. And see, as long as hell is a reality, we must tell the good news to those that don't know Christ. And so my challenge for you as we wrap up today is this. Who in your life needs to know the good news? A mom, a dad, an uncle, a sister. Who, who is it? A friend? Who needs to know the good news? God has placed you in their life to tell them that. Let me pray for us. God, as I, uh, as I reflect on the resurrection, I am, I am thankful, God, that you are who you claim to be. Because the resurrection means, God, that I will get to spend eternity, God, with you. And Father, it also means, God, that I have a hope today that you are the author of, of joy, you're the author of peace and of life, and you're the same God that, that did miracles millions of years ago you're going to do in my life today. You're going to move the miracle of anger or whatever it may be. I just ask that you continue to lead us in this room. Father, if we have a hard heart, if there are people in this room that, that, that are rejecting you for whatever reason, they, they, they want to do what they want to do, uh, they want to be autonomous, self-governing, whatever it may be, I just ask, God, that you you show them an enlarged view of who you are, that you are better than anything that this world has to offer. And Father, we can have trust in you. We can give you our lives knowing that you are trustworthy. You're never going to abandon us as people do. God, that you know what's best. You have wisdom and discernment, God, that we don't have. And that finally, that you love us. So Father, today, may you teach us what it looks like to love you more. May we continue to give you more room in our hearts, more room in our lives. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.